Hey everyone, welcome to MCU Fan Show episode 245. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I'll be joined by guest host Tom DeMichael for our spoiler review of Moon Knight episode 3, The Friendly Type, directed by Mohamed Diab and written by Bo DeMeo and Peter Cameron and Sabir Perzada. And this series was created for television by Jeremy Slater. Moon Knight is, of course, a Kevin Feige production. But before we, be we begin the show, want to let you know about Fan Show Plus. That is a podcast that is available to premium subscribers over at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber and also on Apple Podcasts if you search for Fan Show Plus, whether that's on the MCU Fan Show channel on Apple Podcasts or just type in Fan Show Plus. When you search on Apple Podcasts, you can find it there. And that is where we talk about additional MCU news like the brand new teaser for Thor Love and Thunder that will be available on Fan Show Plus pretty close to around the time that you are seeing this episode 245 of MCU Fan Show on your feed. So make sure you check that out again. It's patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or search Fan Show Plus on Apple Podcasts and subscribe there. And then make sure you're following us in all those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're enjoying the show, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you over on Apple Podcasts. And now on with our show. How you doing, Tom DeMichael? Welcome back. Right-o. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was either that or give me the body. Give me the body. <laughs> Take the body. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh, good, man. man. Thank you so much for having me. This is uh, really fun. We got some fun stuff to talk about. We really do. And I'm very excited to get into this episode of Moon Knight. But you and I have not had as much of a chance to just talk about your thoughts on the series in general. And now we are halfway through it. So before we get too specific into episode three, just overall, how have you been enjoying Moon Knight so far? I've been very much looking forward to Moon Knight every week. Um, I think that we're getting a number of genres in the MCU that we haven't gotten to explore much before. Um, you know, we talk about the MCU kind of delving into uh, the macabre and the horror. Um, I think that there's been some really good, uh, you know, street level action. Uh, there was great stuff with that last week. This week, I'm really excited to be on uh, because this was a, a globe trotting action adventure, which is one of my favorite genres of film or game. And uh, yeah, this was just another great addition to an exciting, engaging series thus far. That's also just really emotionally intelligent and, uh, you know, features incredible performances from great actors. Yeah, it's been really, really fun so far. I I'm really excited about getting a couple weeks beyond this because being having my spoiled first nerd world problem of having seen the first four episodes. Um, but it's nice to be able to. Uh, see this episode because it's not like when you get the screener like you can just you get to watch it for a little bit you don't necessarily get to watch it all the time uh, whenever you want like when it's on Disney plus so I've certainly been looking forward to being able to watch this episode multiple times and just dive into it because I do think that there's a lot of interesting things to find as you go through these episodes um, more than once if you have the time to uh, to do so um, but of course you know when we're talking about episode three of Moon Knight, we we want to talk about Gaspar Uliel, who plays uh, Anton uh, Mogart in this episode. And that is the character who is the black market dealer that uh, Layla and Mark Spector go and, and visit to check out the sarcophagus of Senfu. 
uh, at one point in this episode. And Gaspar Uyo, as many of you know, passed away earlier this year. So uh, our condolences, of course, to all of his friends and family and everyone who who knew about him and everyone whose lives he touched. And and for those of us as fans whose lives he touched just through this, not that we knew him. I, I cannot claim to have been a massive Gaspard Ulio fan uh, prior to his involvement in Moon Knight, um, but he has been a well-known uh, actor and not necessarily known in the U.S., but um, he did a really great job in this episode. And, and as we will get into it, I, I certainly think that we will see that there were there were seeds that were planted that allowed for more than an appearance in this episode. And we may see him again later on in the series. We don't know. Um, but there was certainly potential with this character that we'll talk about that maybe could have gone into other MCU projects. But uh, more than that, of course, is just the loss of life and, and the loss of everything that Gaspar Uyo could have gone on to do. Um, in his career, in his personal life, with his friends and family. So again, our our condolences to to his friends and family for just a, a tragic tragic loss. Yeah, likewise. I mean, he uh, I wasn't too familiar before this either, but you know, when he came on screen, I, I kind of forgot that he was the cast member that had passed away that we mm-hmm. heard about during the production of this, and uh, it's just so unfortunate. Um, you know, for every you know. Every reason in the book, you just hate to see somebody uh, leave at any age, but especially too soon. And then in terms of this episode, too, I thought he was a really charismatic, unique performer. You reach those points in that, you know, the the action movie where you start putting more players on the table and they're meeting new people along the journey and you want them to be distinct, colorful personalities. And uh, I thought this guy was just so unique and just held the screen. So it's a shame. I would have loved to have seen more of him. Yeah, same here. And and certainly as soon as his uh, his character first appeared in this episode, that charisma that you mentioned was immediately apparent and you just locked in and, and engaged with this character. And uh, hopefully we will get to see more of the character uh, throughout more of Gaspar's performance in uh, in this series, because, yeah, he really was uh, he, he really was terrific. And it's just a tragic loss for, you know, for for all the reasons that we've uh, that we've talked about. So let's go ahead and move forward with the uh, with the episode. And this one actually picks up not with Mark or Steven, but with Layla, who's meeting up with a forger whom she's obviously known for some time, a forger who's known her since she was a kid. And Layla is getting herself a new passport so that she can get to Egypt because she knows that that's where Mark Spector is. There's also a key little piece of information there that she mentions where she mentions that Stephen was living 20 minutes from their old place, there being Mark and Layla. So this just gives us a little bit of a practical sense of how this double life with this dissociative identity disorder, how Mark was able to maintain it, um, is that he and Stephen were living separate lives, but they were fairly close to one another, um, either not just during, perhaps even before Mark Spector's time, as Moon Knight, because how all of that works and all the mechanics of that aren't exactly clear at, at this point. But Steven has been set up there for a while. And I also liked this scene because it showed that Layla has got her own past. She hasn't been to Egypt for 10 years. That's home for her. And we'll learn later in the episode that what prompted her to leave Egypt for 10 years was the death of her father. And so we do see Layla and the forger talking about her father in the past tense. He was an archaeologist who was on a dig. He never made it back. And Layla 
as she mentions here, doesn't know what happened. Whatever happened in that desert is lost to the sands. So easy bet uh, to figure out whether or not this is a subject that's going to come up again. It totally will in and it does, uh, of course, in this episode and not that it's completely resolved by the end of this episode, but we'll talk about that as we get to it. But I really liked just this scene on multiple reasons. I think it did a good job of providing information without just coming across as trying to provide information. I think it did so artfully. It did so in a scene that helps humanize and, and add depth to the character of Layla. And it also shows that she is, as we kind of saw last week, but it's not just action. She is an adventurer all on her own, not just with Mark because of her own past, with her own father, of course. And as I said here, having her own resources, knowing where to go if she needs a fake passport to get herself to Egypt and also understanding what she's been up to, that she's been stealing or rather liberating some already stolen relics and returning them or keeping a few to pay the bills, as she says. I think this scene in a rather short amount of time really helped us get to know Layla away from and independent of Mark Spector. And I really like that to start this episode. Totally. I mean, this is the kind of thing you hope for in stories like this, where we're just, you know, meeting character after character, um, you know, with this kind of great, concise kind of Lawrence Kasdan writing where you're just getting little glimpses and little uh, crumbs of past relationships and uh, former adventures while, you know, getting ready for the next one. I thought that um, it was really exciting to see the Marvel TV for the, you know, the Marvel Studios TV streaming format uh, continue to be utilized in really cool ways here. Mm. I thought this was a great example where, you know, maybe if you were doing this as a movie, you would get some of these lines transposed into maybe Layla's first or second meeting with Mark. Um, right. And maybe you wouldn't get to spend this much time with her on her own. You could, and you probably should in a movie, but, um, you know, we just have so much more time to build out everyone's arcs and build out the world. And like you were saying, her, her past adventures and, um, and also just, you know, some, some of, uh, the emotional life within too. I really enjoyed that, uh, Legaro, I think her name is, is, uh, she's saying that, uh, archaeologists are a bunch of bookworms. Right. And, you know, as we're kind of exploring what kind of, uh, what kind of person, Mark and Stephen are going to be, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing what kind of husband he was too. And it's nice to see, uh, you know, the, the seeds being planted for Layla's, uh, bonding with Stephen as well as Mark. So when you're, when you're talking about archeology span as, uh, you know, uh, being an adventurer and an explorer, you're also getting somebody who's inquisitive and a historian too. Uh, so we're seeing all these qualities that are bonding our characters together. Yeah. And, and as we've known for decades in, in film already, that archaeologists are just ready-made action heroes. That's what they are. Of course, yeah. That's what they are put on this earth to be. And mm -hmm. speaking of uh, archaeologists and digs, well, we catch up with Arthur Harrow and his followers as they the uh, Scarab Compass has led them successfully to Amit's tomb. And uh, but Harrow is told that Mark Spector is in Cairo. He is already well aware of that. And so we get to cut to Mark Spector in Cairo. He's out there to interrogate some folks. The person he wants to talk to 
he comes upon that person being killed, so now he has to talk to the people who killed him, and we see an interesting role reversal a little bit from the very first episode of Moon Knight, where it was Mark Spector interfering when things got too physically dangerous for Steven. It was now, now it's Steven who is the one who is talking and interfering as things maybe aren't so, maybe at a time when he shouldn't be talking and interfering because things are so physically dangerous for Mark when Steven is speaking up here. But it is also these moments where maybe it's not Mark's body that's in danger as much as his moral compass, let's say. And in the way this happened here, it kind of had me feeling like, whereas Mark Spector is the one trying to save the body. Maybe Stephen Grant gets to be the one who tries to save the soul uh, mm. in the places that he can. And there are multiple instances of that in this episode, but it kind of starts here. And, you know, it's initially played as almost a comedic thing. Like Mark mm -hmm. is beating up on these guys and it looks like uh, just when it looks like he's maybe going to kill them. Now he's downstairs in a cab and then he sees them again and, and the chase is back on. But there was also a really great moment here in this sequence in the initial fight on the rooftop. There was the part where the guy was, you know, speaking of famous movie action hero archaeologists, there was the point where the guy was licking his knife <laughs> and without missing a beat, without slowing down for a second or even really pausing to take in that visual, Mark Spector immediately throws a punch. And while it's not a dead-on repeat of it, because I, I certainly think it, it is its own version of it, maybe a little bit of a gentle homage to the iconic scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark, where you have the guy with the sword. And of course, everybody knows the famous story behind it. The guy with the sword putting on his impressive display, and then Indy just shoots the guy. And of course, it was supposed to actually be something more, um, supposed to be a bigger deal, more heightened reality type of action with the whip. But Harrison Ford wasn't feeling great that day, so they just have him shoot the guy, and the scene is so much better that way. This wasn't as dramatic as that. Like, it's not a full-on sword display from Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it is that same thing of a guy trying to do some act of intimidation, in this case, licking the blade of the knife, and the archaeologist action hero, although Mark Spector's not really an archaeologist, he's just a mercenary, but um, he's got an archaeologist identity that's talking to him here, um, and he just cuts the thing short with the punch, uh, and that part I, I absolutely loved, and all of the back and forth between Steven and Mark in this scene, and it's not just them, right? There is potentially a third mm -hmm. identity that pops up where Mark says, that wasn't me. There's a cutaway where now these guys are dead, and Mark says it wasn't him and it wasn't Steven. So you wonder if that was Conchu or some other identity that uh, that we haven't met yet. But I, I really love this scene. Yeah, no, this was like this was the part of the episode where I was just like, oh, we're in we're in my personal heaven. We have uh, foot chases and, uh, you know, hand to hand combat, Oscar Isaac and a series of cool jackets. Yeah, <laughs> uh, just like every, every kind of thing that I want uh, in my entertainment. I definitely also felt uh yeah, the Raiders homage there. I like that it was it was the it was the Muhammad Diab version of that because you get it this really mm -hmm. cool similar to the Raiders thing where it's this big flourish of the sword, a really impressive stunt and a big right. music cue from John Williams. You get the awesome shot where the guy throws the knife up in the air and you get the cool overhead close up of it uh, right in the guy's face, him licking the knife. And then yeah, it's very funny that just the the hand just explodes into the frame while yep. the guy's having his cool close up. <laughs> um, <laughs> And then you talk about, you know, the intervention of Steven. Um, I really appreciate that 
you know, last episode where we're getting Steven's um, take on the events. And uh, when he's talking with with Harrow, you know, we're getting some insight into Steven's moral compass and that he is a, a, a generally more kind character who's more in touch with his empathy than than Mark is. But we do see on his own that Mark is also capable of a certain kind of empathy and pulling his punches where he instead just smacks that kid right um instead of punching him yeah so much nicer he, he was so nice when to just smack the kid instead of full and punch him exactly um <laughs> and uh yeah it, it's nice that they they do share a common ground that steven can appeal to as opposed to uh mark rigidly representing one side steven the other yeah absolutely and you mentioned you know mark taking it easy on the kid, but uh, also even at the end, right? It's Khonshu's idea, and this is where you wonder who who took over and made things more violent and, and whether or not that was Khonshu um, just cutting out the the bickering, the fighting, the back and forth between Steven and Mark and just saying, I'm I'm taking over here, or as I said, the, the possibility of another identity we haven't met yet. But it seems like it was Conchu because it was then Conchu's idea to take the kid over to the edge of the cliff and hang him mm-hmm. off of it. And then uh, the kid says, uh, you know, kid pays tribute to Amit and cuts his scarf and then he falls and that's it. And, you know, Conchu kind of plays it comedically of saying, oh, I thought he'd talk. But it's not really something that uh, Mark Spector was uh, was totally in the mood for. And I, I think Conchu's more dismissive attitude toward what happened maybe speaks to not maybe I think it definitely speaks to uh, the challenges of of Khonshu when it comes to um, what he presents his avatars with and you know morally and you know, the the ethical questions that he puts in front of them um, and the whole ends justifying the means and, and whatever it may be and this is not a case where I think Mark Spector or Stephen Grant would have felt the ends justified the means because now this kid is dead and they didn't even get any information so they are no closer to their goal than they were at the start of all of this. Thankfully, this episode has uh, its first of another of a couple of just, oh, by the way, fixes. Uh, because if you don't succeed in this mission, that's okay. Another opportunity is on the next page of the script. So we decide that, uh, which, you know, conveniences happen. It's fine. I, I'm I'm only kidding. But... Um, <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, yeah. he said episode two was his favorite episode. I'm like, okay, well, what, what happened in three? Yeah, that's, uh, we'll, skipping we'll, him up. Hey, we're, we're coming. We are at that scene of what happens in, okay. in episode three. So they do not get any information from these guys. So Mark Spector suggests, well, why can't we just talk to the gods? And Khonshu lays out the consequences that he will suffer at the end of this episode. So... It comes at a great cost. There's a lot of risk involved because if you want an audience with the gods, you are risking their wrath. And if they don't like what happens, they can imprison Khonshu in stone. And so we get our not Hall of Justice, but our Hall of the Ennead as uh, Khonshu summons a meeting by putting an eclipse in the sky. And this brings everybody to the Great Pyramid of Giza as Stephen, not Mark, recognizes when they walk in. And there's some other little mythology drops here, like confirming the origin of the costume, at least in the MCU iteration, where uh, when Khonshu is saying, hey, if the gods imprison me or if things go bad for me, you wouldn't have the benefit of my healing armor. And when uh, Khonshu has an audience with the gods, we hear about things like the Overvoid, which is where the gods have kind of been camping out. So they haven't necessarily been watching the affairs of man 
uh, all of this time. But anyway, let's get into uh, the scene. So <laughs> all of these avatars show up so that the gods can speak through them. Khonshu speaks through Mark and accuses Harrow of trying to unleash Amit. This is a very bad thing, according to everyone there. Everyone agrees. And so Harrow is summoned to defend himself, and he says he's just visiting, and visiting the Sands are not a crime, and that Khonshu is abusive toward his avatars, and he has chosen an avatar who is unwell. And so when Mark admits that he is not well, he tries to say that that's no reason to believe what Harrow is saying. But the gods believe Harrow anyway, not Mark or Khonshu, and so they just go ahead and they decide that the matter is closed. And this scene was just off for me. I, I didn't like the... I, I like the introduction of the stakes of Khonshu of angering the gods, but it also just felt like too much of a, oh, by the way, we can do this, like, in two seconds, uh, which I mm -hmm. guess if you have godly powers, that sort of makes sense. But... I think this scene only works if it's entirely imagined in the head of Mark Spector slash Stephen Grant. I, I don't really think this scene works very well on a practice, and that may turn out to be the, the reality of this. I don't know. But in a, in a practical sense, I don't think this really works. I think the gods come off as incredibly lame and weak, and you could try to say, that well, the gods are arrogant, and they think they know everything, and so that's why they are so recklessly dismissive of the accusation against Harrow. That's the argument for it. I don't, I can understand that. I just don't really think it, it still just doesn't totally work for me. I, I think the gods come across as way too dismissive of everything that happens here because it's a minimal amount of investigating for the gods to look and see, are they digging in the sands that are not too far from here where Harrow has brought this entire party where he has... He's amassed a lot of followers. It seems like the kind of thing the gods would be able to uncover the truth about um, with minimal effort. So that's part of why I don't necessarily buy it. Also, as a practical matter, Kanshu, after identifying the consequences, says that their case must be indisputable. They make no case. They only offer the accusation. And so Oscar Isaac doing his best to... Uh, communicate the anger and self-righteousness of Khonshu. There's no amount of acting he can do, which is because there's no acting here that's bad, but there's nothing he can do to overcome that the scene isn't written as presenting any sort of case against it. There is, they don't present any evidence. They just say, this is what Harrow is trying to do, and they offer no evidence as to how he's trying to do it. So that gives the gods a little bit of an out for being dismissive as they were presented with an accusation and, uh, and no evidence, but... For all that was allegedly at stake, Kanchu doesn't bring forth any sort of case whatsoever, certainly not one that's that's indisputable, and that's why the scene just didn't work for me. Hmm. Yeah, no, I wish I, I, wish I was uh, strongly tied to uh, the counterpoint just so we can uh, debate it, but I, I, I can't. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, when I was watching this, I did think it went by pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, when the episode was over, I did have to go back and be like, wait, how, how did they arrive at their... At right. that conclusion, um, look, if anything else, you know, I, I think you covered the logistics of it pretty well. I, I, I will say it was really cool to see uh, this set. I thought this yes. was, it seems like it's completely practical. I think, I you know, Ethan Hawke has talked about like, you know, pyramid uh, sets that they built. And this definitely seems like uh, 
you know, a big stage that they were uh, excited to get to uh, to utilize. So I, I hope we return here. Maybe maybe we build out this moment a little bit more in future episodes. Um, I don't know. I, I thought that the I thought the Oscar Isaac performance was cool. Just another personality for him right. to embody. Um, I thought it was also really nice to get some more insight uh, into Harrow's character and start to this episode start to build out his side a mm-hmm. little bit more, at least in terms of the fact that he, you know, he was abused by Kanchu. And when when we're watching these Kanchu Mark scenes too, I mean, this is this is an abusive relationship. This is somebody who is manipulating Mark in many ways with promises and mm-hmm. uh, pressure. Yeah. And, you know, I, I also think to see, you know, Mark really show that his, uh, his dissociative identity disorder is not, not something he likes to share uh, because he's ashamed of it uh, was, was on full display in the scene. I thought that was interesting, um, especially in a scene where the point of it is to, uh, for these, you know, these, these, towering figures to make a judgment mm-hmm. uh, mark is you know uh, unfairly uh, insecure about being judged for his condition and uh, I, I again i just thought the writing uh, those moments were really good and and oscar just played it great yeah i agree with that i, I think ethan hawk shined in this scene when he was talking about and I believe he w- I don't th- just think it was Harrow manipulation. I think there are elements to his performance. And I think Ethan Hawke is able to capture it where there are things that Arthur Harrow says where he genuinely means it. And you totally. know, they they circle back to that at the very end of this episode, which we'll get to. But I, I like your point for sure about Mark Spector and having to ad- admit that he is unwell and it's not something that he likes to share or or say about himself. It is uh, a part of who he is that he is maybe not ashamed of all the time as long as he's able to keep these things separate and under control like he has been able mm-hmm. to. But now that he's not able to do that, now that he doesn't feel that same sense of control, that now he is embarrassed by it. But also, you know, the, the message that that's sending there that just because somebody is unwell or, or may be challenged by something doesn't mm-hmm. mean they're lying and it doesn't mean they're totally unreliable. And that's that's the element of this that I, I liked about the scene. And, and it does speak to certain things. I mean, the that Kanchu says the case must be indisputable and then does not present an indisputable case <laughs> speaks to the irreliability of Kanchu. And, and this is somebody mm-hmm. who we don't necessarily have and, and maybe we're not meant to believe you know, that Kanchu's wisdom is uh, is 100 percent and that everything Kanchu says is is true and, and that this is somebody who we can totally trust. We, we know that we can't because, as we saw at the end of last week's episode, which I thought was really well done, the back and forth of Kanchu from being incredibly condescending to weirdly endearing to threatening mm-hmm. all in one conversation that he was having with Mark Spector. And so. This certainly calls to question the credibility of uh, of Kanchu. And it was interesting, like one of the things I, I did, uh, another thing I, I bumped up against gently in this scene was um, it, it's pretty clear that Oscar Isaac is performing maybe before F. Murray Abraham is cast oh. or recorded because the performance is very, very different, but not not entirely inconsistent because I, in order to make it work for me, I, I just reminded myself 
of some of the more yelly moments uh, and harsher judgmental moments from Khonshu and even the kill him, break his windpipe from episode two, that these types of outbursts uh, are not completely out of character for Khonshu. It's not what we see most consistently, but I could understand Khonshu when the spotlight is on and it's time to make the case in front of a bunch of gods who aren't going to believe him anyway, a bunch of gods who banished him long ago that he would turn it on and, and, and frankly, wouldn't even be able to compose himself and wouldn't even mm -hmm. be able mm -hmm. to calmly state what exactly it is. Just I'm accusing him of this thing and therefore you should believe it. Um, and, and so from a character standpoint, I'm, I'm willing to buy some of that, even if I do have some issues with it. But it still doesn't totally solve, even if we say nobody believes Khonshu, everybody thinks Khonshu is crazy. My sense is that the gods wouldn't have that much trouble to be like, this is a pretty serious accusation. Even if he hasn't presented an indisputable case, maybe we take five minutes to look into this. Maybe, because <laughs> if he's right and, you know, and the 0.1% chance that Khonshu is right, things get really bad. So we might want to give this a look and not just completely dismiss it. But a brief again, recess. Yeah, exactly. A brief recess while we review the complete lack of evidence and we just look at things anyway. Uh, we'll try to find <laughs> our own because this seems bad enough. Uh, but sure, you can you can write that off as arrogance of the gods. Um, so some things I bumped up against in that scene, but certainly elements to it that still totally work. That's why I wouldn't call this entirely bad scene and i still really liked this episode and, and i promise i don't get to i don't have much more to beat up on this episode about uh i will get back to uh to praising it and uh although we do get that other uh convenient solve in this episode because another one because the interrogations in cairo did not work the meeting at the hall of the Ennead did not work but thankfully yatsio played uh perfectly by diana bermudez uh she was great in this yes. and uh yatsio is the avatar of hathor the goddess of music and love who may have shared some music and love with Kanshu at one point uh certainly seems to be implied there tells mark about a potential clue within the sarcophagus of senfu which was stolen and sold on the black market so after these dead ends, there's another opening that's created, which does turn this episode into a bit of go here, now go here, now go here. That nice level. Yeah, that I think I think some of these individual scenes suffer from a little bit of how many stops there are on this quest yeah. just in this one episode. Because as you mentioned, going back and rewatching this meeting of the Ennead, it it doesn't play nearly as long as you would think it would for as important as the scene seems to be. And so that's where maybe I, I would say the episode is is a touch overwritten in that it's just got it's got a lot going on. And maybe this is one that maybe could have used an extra 10 minutes or 15 minutes of runtime to allow some of this to breathe a little bit as opposed to, you know, the A to B to C uh, checkpoints. That's a good way to put it, because I, I don't think I would want less because I think what I what I liked about this episode was the, uh, you know, the, the scale of it, the scope of it, the amount of ground it covered and the different locations and color palettes that came with it. But yeah, I guess if we could, if we could flesh these things out even more, um, I, I hope that they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't shy away from that because I, I don't think that the pacing would suffer much if we just gave a, a couple extra nudges to these things. Um, yeah. 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 I, I think it would. So 
Uh, Layla has arrived just in time. She's in Egypt now as Mark is trying to find the sarcophagus of Senfu. He asks one guy and that doesn't work out. But luckily, <laughs> Layla is there and she knows the guy to ask. So they are on a boat ride to meet up with Anton and Mark apologizes for this whole situation and lying to Layla, not being totally truthful with her. And they reminisce about happier times, including their wedding. And Stephen shares that this was something that he was that he had under control, his dissociative identity disorder, as he perceived it anyway. He had it under control until very recently. And Layla asks him what happened. And he says it doesn't matter. And so that's a little bit different than I think last week, where it seems like the tone was a little more. I don't know. At this point, it's more it's fairly clear that Mark kind of knows what happened or maybe not kind of. Maybe he totally knows what happened. But uh, him saying it doesn't matter just means it's maybe not something he wants to share with Layla. Uh, but something it it certainly appears that there it's not a totally unknown origin of how this break has happened and how Mark mm -hmm. has lost control. It seems like he has at least some sense of it which I, I wasn't as sure about after episode two, but definitely felt it here in this scene. And it was a good scene. It was a good scene. Um, I was happy to see Layla and Mark get a chance to connect. I think there's been good scenes between um, Stephen and Layla thus far. It was just good to get a little more insight as to where they left things off. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it was a really, really cool location for the scene to take place too. I just thought uh, we had great contrast from a lot of the oranges of the town square and the desert. Um, we're getting this like really cool blue and purple. Yeah. Uh, kind of nightlife vibe. And it's the whole thing is very romantic. And I, I think it's a, a great, um, unique relationship in the, the pantheon of superior entertainment that we're getting right now. Um, in that it's in, it's a, a couple that's been together for a while and is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, drifted apart by the time that we find them. And, it's it's fun to kind of get little pieces of where things might have gone astray and where they might have uh, parted from each other and you know how how much of it i think we're going to find out is um mark being afraid to share himself uh, right. with his wife and i i appreciated the line where she said um you know where they said it's uh, we never could talk about anything anything real right um, I think they were people who were extremely good at what they did, probably got swept up in the the romance and the adrenaline of it all, and probably functioned really, really well together uh, in their in their duties and just as a as a couple. But you know, when it comes to a point of vulnerability, when there's parts of you that you don't want to uh, have on display, uh, who do you become and what walls do you then put up? And it, it's fun to see these two reconnect. Because they're, they're they're great. It's just a great uh, great little scene. Yeah, and for our purposes, it's kind of showing them connecting for the first time. You know, we've yeah. we're not we weren't witness to their marriage prior to you know Layla hearing her just over the phone and the first episode, and then mm -hmm. her spending really more time interacting with Stephen in the second one. And, and you see the the chemistry actually between uh, between Layla and Stephen Grant. And you kind of wonder how she ever really ended up romantically involved with, let alone married to Mark Spector. But you see it in this scene, even though they didn't necessarily have the most open and intimate relationship. You do see a, a connection and a bond between 
the two of them. And and it's a really great job, actually, between these two actors uh, with Oscar Isaac and Mae Kalamawi to be able to show a connection between two completely different versions of uh, of Mark Spector slash Stephen mm-hmm. Grant for it to be uh, believable on Layla's end, but then also on each end of uh, for Mark Spector, for the love that he's had for a long time for Stephen a connection that is immediate and, and apparent to him, but obviously more powerful than he can even understand because he has uh, at least he's been in the body and in somewhere in that headspace uh, for Mark Spector's relationship with Layla. So he may not be conscious of it, but he still mm-hmm. experienced a lot of that, which I think feeds into more of his immediate attraction to uh, Layla. But yeah, this was a, a really good scene. And then this brings us to Anton Mogart's and we see first off that they are already being watched probably by Harrow's men. And Layla has a cover story for them that Mark will still get to be her husband, but he will not be Mark Spector. It will be another name uh, for Mark Spector, not Stephen Grant either. Rufino Estrada is the name that he goes by. And then they meet up with Beck an interesting piece here from Beck, who is kind of the the head guy, uh, security guy for Anton. He mentions Madripoor. After Madripoor, I'm sure you two have a lot to talk about, meaning Layla and Anton, which creates a possible connection between, well, Anton and the power broker, but also potentially Layla and the power broker. If we think about how these characters could continue on, and, and obviously with Gaspar Uliel, we we won't see that. Uh, for the care other unless of course uh, we see Anton come back in in this series but certainly for Layla whose future can continue on in the MCU if she's been to Madripoor and she's been around that that creates the most obvious uh, point of intersection there would be for someone like Sharon Carter aka the power broker uh, although it looks like she'll be spending more time in the US although she's gonna be in CIA she could be moving around but Um, There are certainly things that we could see for these characters in the future that don't necessarily tether them to specifically Moon Knight or Mark Spector. So before we even get into the the larger pieces of this scene, just that mention of of Madripoor, I I thought was important because this show has largely de-emphasized its connections to the broader MCU. And I don't say that as a criticism. It's merely as an observation. It's not necessarily a good or a bad thing, although I do think this story is benefiting from just kind of staying in its Mm -hmm. own space. But it is still part of the MCU, unless this is all in someone's head, but it is still part of the MCU. And uh, yeah, and then I I like the idea of uh, specifically Layla. I mentioned before, she's had her own adventures. She has her own resources, but she could have her own future in the MCU that that doesn't always have to rely on, um, you know, her just, you know, writing alongside uh, Mark Spector or Stephen Grant. Totally. Yeah. No, I thought the Madripoor drop was... uh... If anything, it just served as a reminder that we haven't really gotten many MCU shout outs so far on the show. And it's been it's been holding its own and and just uh, standing on its own two feet. It's exciting to think of uh, this energy and mythology uh, meeting up with the established MCU. Absolutely. And so Anton, uh, we see as he meets up with Layla and uh, and Rufino. Uh, Anton really likes Layla, not a big fan of Rufino. And he does let them see, though, the sarcophagus of Senfu, which is Stephen's time to shine, but Mark won't let him out. So Stephen tries to help Mark decode the message, but now they're in trouble because now Mark is touching the sarcophagus and trying to put together some sort of star map on the sarcophagus. And to make so then guns get drawn, and to make matters worse, 
Harrow is here and he drops a bomb when he says talking about the he starts talking about the murder of Layla's father and that her husband doesn't tell her the truth, implying that Mark knows or was perhaps involved with what happened to Layla's father. And remember, she just thinks whatever happened there was lost to the sands. She doesn't know what happened to her father. But Mark, as Harrow puts it, can't tell her because if he tells her, she will see him as exactly exactly as he sees himself as unworthy of love. And I, I think I want to talk more about this when we get to the convert the follow-up conversation about this bomb that Harrow dropped between Layla and Mark. But that's a big revelation that gets into kind of what they were talking about on the boat, where the time they never talked about anything real. Well, now it's about to get really real with what it sounds like they have to talk about. But this whole sequence, another win for the production design. You know, you mentioned the Great Pyramid of Giza, this whole thing, you know, the, the games that Anton is is playing and, and, you know, being taught by, trained by the best and everything that he's doing. And this little pyramid tower that they have the sarcophagus in. All of that, I, I thought, looked uh, looked really great. And even the involvement of, of Harrow, I liked him being tied to this. He had to be tied to this pretty soon because if we're mentioning, if he already knows that Marks in Cairo, he's as is we're talk, as we're told in the beginning of the episode, then he's already been keeping tabs on him. And we see that they're watching when this scene starts, when Layla and Mark first arrive. And I, I just love that Harrow has something to sell to Anton that Anton genuinely values in order to get Anton to not hard to get Anton to betray Rufino or Mark doesn't care about that guy, but he does like and respect Layla and to go against her. Uh, Harrow really has to offer something and he dazzles Anton with proof that his, you know, his beloved Egyptian lord that it's everything that he's been collecting. Like it's all true. It's all real. And he shows him by destroying Zenfu's sarcophagus, a weird way to show a guy that uh, what you're offering is something real. But I guess he won't mind if you destroy his stuff in the process. Um, but also, but thankfully, they save the star map so they don't necessarily they don't lose their clues. We don't need another way to solve the location of, yeah, uh, they of the progress Tomb. on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Quick manual save. Nice. Well done. But yeah, this whole sequence, I, I thought, looked great before we even get into the, the Moon Knight of it all and, and Harrow's. Uh, the emergence of, of Anton, and we talked about Gaspar Uliel, who is just uh, magnetic in his performance. Love this awesome. guy, um, even though it was uh, only we only see him briefly. Um, but everything, everything about this, and even the back and forth between Mark and Stephen and these guys, and it, it really is the reversal from uh, again episode two, where Stephen really needed to give Mark control, and he just wouldn't do it. Here, Mark really needs to give Stephen control because this is not his field of expertise. And he won't do it because these guys just can't run the risk of if I give up control once, I may never get it back. So having all of those competing elements in, in the scene, I think they did a great job expanding on these characters and uh, and the story. This scene I thought was really rich. Absolutely. I think um, the MCU hasn't done too much exploration of like, you know, multiple identities. Literally, I mean, if you think, I think most famously like the Hulk where you would have those those dialogues between yep. Hulk and Banner and those kind of ethereal planes um, or in things like a mirror. Um, of course, you know, Norman Osborn in the mirror in the Raimi Spider-Man movies. It's right. It's great in uh, this current wave of super entertainment to get uh, these conversations between multiple uh, sides of oneself. And I think that it's, it's, I think it's a, a tasteful depiction. Uh, I, I mean, I think at least I'm no expert on the subject, but 
uh, it feels like they definitely did their homework on wanting to depict uh, the mental health aspect of the show mm -hmm. with sensitivity and accuracy while still bringing um, an artful depiction of, uh, of how it might be for this character of, of Mark and Steven. And, you know, things like lighting and, um, you know, framing of the camera assist the already great mm -hmm. work that Oscar Isaac is doing to differentiate the two characters. Yeah, he really did a great job. There's, uh, as far as him differentiating the characters, there's a great moment toward the end of the episode oh. where he's changing character in camera that uh, yeah. we will we'll certainly get to. But as we summon the suit for this episode, this is probably our best and most prolonged Moon Knight action so far in the series. And I mean, everything about it from the the jump mm -hmm. with the cape uh, just showing up in the, mm -hmm. all big in the wind and hitting that crescent moon shape uh, looked awesome. The fighting was great, whether it was the hand to hand fisticuff stuff or the spears going through the body, but it's OK because it's healing armor. Why not? Um, to all of the many crescent moon dart throws, all of that was great. And then as things are getting so violent, and, and I think it was great to have the debate, let's call it, between mm -hmm. Mark and Steven continue while Mark was Moon Knight. And we saw some of this when Steven was Mr. Knight, that these guys, even when they put on the suit or when they summon the suit, they are there is still a part of them. Whoever summoned the suit, that part of them is in there, plus the other guy now, because of these mm -hmm. uh, the control not being whatever it, it used to be, as, as Mark has put it. And, you know, Steven, as Moon Knight gets ultra violent, that Steven's the one trying to get him to pull back and, and Mr. Knight actually makes a cameo. But then we see maybe uh, the the quickest instance of one of them just giving up control to the other after Steven becomes Mr. Knight and then things get tough. He immediately just says, you know, as we joked about at the top of the show, take the body, take the body, just knowing take that. Uh, yeah, which. It was an interesting moment. Like you, it's a it's a comedy beat for sure, but I think it's yeah. also more than that because we've seen so much resistance to giving the other guy control, and this was almost immediate. That Steve, even after, even after Stephen just got it and wrestled it away from Mark, he was willing to give it back because he just knew that okay, like this is not for me. Like as much as I want to save the soul, uh, Mark is in charge mm -hmm. of of protecting the body, and the body needs to be protected right now because I'm not good at this. Uh, and so Mark is able to finish the fight as Moon Knight and, and gives even Anton uh, a parting gift. But Anton does get away. So maybe we could still see uh, Gaspar Ulliel return later on in the, in the series. And I, and I really hope we do, because he certainly shined in, in this episode. But uh, yeah, this, the Moon Knight action in this, I loved it in episode two, but it was even better in, in this one. Well, I think it's been great to see Moon Knight uh in confined spaces thus far, but to have him in a big mm -hmm. open arena like this, already just a cool location for an action sequence, but to literally have, you know, goons, you know, running around the the bullpen while the, yeah. you know, the, the, the raging bull is loose was just really cool uh, visuals. And like you said, just some of these, uh, some of these iconic shots. I've been loving the music on the score, on this show, you know, Sean knows that I love scores. And uh, this, this has a really distinct theme that's been, uh, you know, definitely been <laughs> tormenting uh, my thoughts and dreams and it's stuck in my head. I, I definitely pop every time I hear it. And uh, it's been it's been cool. Um, I think I think the suit looks really cool in this scene. Um, sometimes uh, I felt like there were a couple weird shots with the suit, to be honest. Uh, um, and I don't know if that was just like a lighting thing or what, but for the most part, it's looked 
really, really fluid. And there was just a yeah. couple parts where it looked like it was on the frame instead of in it. Yeah, there's a lot of shots that are, well, not a lot, but there are a few where it's CG and it's it's apparent that it's CG mm -hmm. and it's not uh, it's not as seamless as you would normally like it to be, or I'm sure they would normally hope that it is. And I, I certainly think you could probably chalk that up to these shows still don't have as expensive as they are. They don't have the budgets of the movies. So some things are, are they're mm -hmm. just not going to be able to continue to go on until it looks perfect. And, and frankly, even the movies don't have every CG shot looking perfect. And I'm reminded a little bit with uh, the CG in this of Spider-Man and Black Panther in Captain America Civil War. Mm -hmm. where it was uh, a lot of times on set, it's Tom Holland and Chadwick Boseman or their doubles wearing a suit that had, whether it was a gray suit or a mock-up suit that had the little dots on it. And then they there was, uh, I think it was ILM or maybe somebody else, but they were going through and they were kind of digitally, even though an actor had performed it on set, they were still painting the suit onto the actor digitally. And it kind of feels like there's some of that. But there's also some of these moments where it feels like Moon Knight is entirely CG and it doesn't really seem like there was an actual physical performance of a certain move. And I, I don't know that for sure. I'm staying tuned for the Marvel Studios Assembled uh, episode for Moon Knight. Um, but yeah, it, it certainly seems like there are moments where either the character is entirely CG or if it's a CG paint job over a physical performance, it's still apparent that I'm looking at the CG paint job and, and not as much of the, the physical performance. So the VFX, when it comes to Moon Knight, not always uh, not always perfect, I, I would say. And, and there were a couple shots here that kind of bugged me. But that also happened in the the rooftop chase as brief as it was in, in episode two as well. There are a couple shots that are a little more it's a little more apparent that we're not necessarily looking at a a stunt performer in a physical costume that there is uh you know there's some digital work at play also our eyes are just getting so sophisticated at this point we're we're true connoisseurs of uh, of course mcu cgi that it's uh you know we're, we're reaching a <laughs> plateau where it's forcing the uh the technology to improve because uh freaks like us are starting to notice <laughs> yeah well and, and it will continue to get better as as it yeah. often does but there will there will still be the occasional shots that are uh, that are a miss. But what doesn't miss, look at the segue here, uh, is the very next scene that hits home in, in just the way that it needs to. That is the conversation that I mentioned before between Layla and Mark about Harrow's revelation, not full re revelation, ju just enough of a revelation to cause trouble uh, between Mark and, uh, and Layla, hinting at very strongly that Mark knows what happened uh, with uh, and he at least has some knowledge of or involvement in the the death of Layla's father. As they're having this conversation, Layla's asking about what Harrow said, and Mark is um, because and that's where she reveals, as she mentioned earlier, she hasn't been in Egypt in ten years. This is where she says mm -hmm. that it was because of her father's death, and Mark just says Harrow is full of crap. Um, but no, Mark is the one who's full of crap in this scene. That it is uh, Mark knows. He, he knows something about this or a lot about this, knows about the, the death of Layla's father. Pretty sure he was there. You know, we're talking about archaeologists at dig sites, as uh, the forger mentions at the top of the episode. And, you know, there is some danger for all these bookworms uh, because, again, archaeologists are action heroes. So Mark was there. Was he even 
responsible directly or indirectly as a mercenary? Was this a situation where Mark Spector was totally a bad guy and comfortable being a bad guy? And then maybe this situation happened and maybe that's where Mark turned and realized I can't be this kind of person. I mean, for all I know, that's where the the identity of Stephen Grant was created. Of like, mm-hmm. I, I'm so disgusted with who I am that I, you know, another identity gets created as a result of this trauma. And I don't know that that's how what what will be revealed in this series or, or anything like that. But clearly, Mark knows something. And after that conversation that he and Layla had on the boat about not talking about anything real, to see Mark just dodge immediately that first opportunity mm-hmm. to talk about something real, um, I, I thought was, I mean, it was very sad in, in that respect of Layla wants and needs the truth from him and he just can't give it to her. But he takes it a step further when she talks about how she doesn't feel like she knows him and how it's and he just says you don't like, and, and implies that she never has known him. They've been together all this time, been married and the whole thing. And so in order to, and you could just kind of tell that was Mark's way of escalating it because it's not like mm-hmm. Layla deserved that comment. But that was Mark escalating it to try and shut it down because he didn't want that line of questioning to continue. Um, he he lied in the moment because he felt, again, he felt like he had to. As Harrow says, you don't want her to see you as you see yourself, unworthy of love. Um, and so he he had to lie and then had to shut it down before Layla would continue the questioning. Yeah, and thus, you know, pushing her away further. And it's this, uh, you know, it, it's this compartmentalization of the truth that, is uh, keeping them apart in many ways, and Mark not wanting to, uh, I don't know, not want to, not want to uh, be vulnerable any further, and just want to change the subject. He, you know, he ends up having to uh, further dive deeper into kind of his cruelty and his coldness, mm-hmm. and it's it's a it's a sad thing to see, um, and you you know you kind of get where uh, where some of these um like you said these tendencies are coming from and uh how he's maybe clinging further to one side of himself clinging further to the mark side and mm-hmm. you know at, this is of course coming up where he's gonna really really resist letting steven out um but uh, like we said we're kind of hoping to come toward harmony with these many sides of uh, mark specter and and steven and hopefully that's going to be reflected in the relationship too uh, as he said, like we on their last uh, commute on the boat, they had an opportunity to acknowledge that they never showed their full selves to each other. Um, they never got real. And one of them said, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have. And right here, they're kind of find themselves repeating that pattern um, where it's, it's more than just wouldn't it be nice if, oh, yeah, if we have the chance, we will. It's like, well, now you're actually faced with the tension and the emotions and the stakes that come with mm. moments like that. And figuring out how do we respond this time. Yeah, it's a lot easier to say, hey, we should get real than to actually get real and and have the conversation. So in theory, it works. But in the moment when you have to be vulnerable and you have to be fully honest and and transparent, like then it becomes so much more difficult and and obviously way more difficult than than Mark is willing to deal with right here in this moment. And this is a, a hard time for him. This is not to excuse him because frankly I don't, I don't know what mark did or didn't do with respect to the mm-hmm. death of of layla's father but i i thought what he said to her at the very end of that scene was very mean i have more of a problem with him for saying that than i do yeah. for just lying about it because 
if he's lying about something that he's ashamed of, hopefully eventually he'll be honest about that. And he's he's working through being honest about himself. But there's certainly a lot more work left to be done. But uh, we get to our, our last scene of the episode. And this one is uh, if I could turn back time, if that's what they're actually doing. Uh, we do see that Harrow's uh, followers are still watching Layla and Mark. And Mark finally decides that he just can't figure this out. And just getting Steven's advice about how to put the star map together isn't really going to work. He needs Steven to actually do it. So he lets Steven take over. And that is my favorite shot of the episode. And one of my favorite shots of the series so far is... Oscar Isaac looking into the side rear view mirror that he just snapped off of the vehicle. And then we see him change from Mark to Steven, not in like the roll the eyes in the back of the head transition, wake up to it's a different guy now, or it's an after the fact. It's all in one shot. No special effects that I can see anyway, it, other than the special effect of Oscar Isaac's uh, remarkable ability. And well, I wouldn't say that all of a sudden he is completely unrecognizable as he shifts from Mark Spector to Stephen Grant. He is quite obviously a different character. And I, I think that is something the way he does it is fairly subtle. And uh, I mean, who knows? Maybe they did have a fancy edit and they cut to it, but it looks like it's the, all the same <laughs> shot. And uh, I, I really like what Oscar Isaac did there because uh, I, I, I think he's done a great job portraying these two characters of Mark Spector and Stephen Grant and and more than that, Conchu and everything. But uh, these two specifically, Mark Spector and Stephen Grant, and to see him go from one to the other uh, so quickly in that transition, uh, I couldn't help but be impressed by that. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> it reminded me of that moment in uh, Christopher Reeve's Superman that I think it's mm. it trends every now and then of just like an example of uh, great physical transformation before your eyes using just body language and posture and then inner energy of how you carry mm. yourself. And it was really exciting to see uh, Oscar Isaac just switch and kind of, you know, make the choice of how it, okay, not only does Mark go away and Steven arrives, but how does Steven react when he's there? You know, what does it feel like to suddenly come online? Right. I was very happy that I was uh, excited to see Steven. It felt, it felt good to just like, Hey, Steven's back. Right. Um, we we start the show, uh, the series, feeling so sorry for him, and uh, kind of, you know, checking the boxes of all the things that need to be improved and changed in his mm -hmm. life, and how Mark is the solution to a lot of it. Uh, and now, like I said, we're we're approaching further uh, unity between these sides and seeing what makes Stephen great, not just for his skills, but also like he is a really kind person and an effortless, mm. effortlessly uh, caring person, and it's just a a good presence to come back in a, in a otherwise pretty aggressive episode. Um, I also really enjoyed that Mark, um, you know, we're talking about him, you know, continuing to be cruel and pushing, pushing Layla away and, you know, just saying, you don't know me when he broke the mirror off. I thought he was just raging and I was like, Oh boy, this guy's really, really going through it. Um, it was his way of just like, all right, I'm, I'm going to transform, but I, I can't do it in front of you. Right. Uh, so I like the, to go have a little private moment. He's still, He's, he's willing to do it, but he just doesn't want to, uh, you know, show her the full process yet. So I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. yeah. Oscar Isaac just killing it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's a really good point as far as being happy to see Steven because he gets to have a hero moment here. Like this is him 
in episode two, it's him being Mr. Knight. It's him trying to be a hero in a way that he can't really be a hero, that he's not prepared to be a hero. Like, I'm going to put on a suit, and that means I can fight the monster. And while he gets in a good punch, that's not enough to end the fight. And there's still a lot that's going on and, and a greater risk of collateral damage. So that's not Steven's field of expertise. But just being physically tough and being good with your fists or a gun or whatever that's also not going to get it done. That's not going to be able to solve every problem that they have. And so Steven's value becomes apparent and we get to see that and he gets to have this hero moment where he helps figure this out and he's able to work with Layla. And also, I, I love the way that Layla recognized Steven because as you said, mm -hmm. Mark walks away to make the transformation. But we go from Layla dismissing and not even believing this idea that that Steven is different than Mark and, and thinking that this is all some act on the part of Mark Spector. But this time, now it's it is more obvious to her and, and seeing the difference between these two identities, because now when Steven mm -hmm. walks up, she immediately recognizes that that's him and no longer Mark. And they uh, they get to work. And I mean, also the the the, uh, the end of that shot, the cheers, thanks a lot uh, when Steve when he becomes Steven, uh, also just Im impeccable line delivery. But they do put together the map of the stars. The problem, though, as Steven points out, is that this is what the stars looked like 2000 years ago to try and pinpoint the location of Amit's tomb. But Khonshu remembers that night, which you think, <laughs> oh, convenient. But then he says, I remember every night. And I'm like, OK, well, that's what the moon god should be able to say and, and do. So remember every single night. And so Khonshu turns back the night sky to how it looked then with the help of Mr. Knight. So now Steven suited up, gets to do something of value to the mission. And Khonshu and Steven working together and just seeing them working together because Khonshu hates Stephen Grant. Even before uh, Stephen Grant is summoned here, like he's even saying, like, I summon the suit, you summon the worm, is the last thing he says about Stephen Grant before now he actually works with Stephen Grant as Mr. Knight. So I, I love that. Visually, it, it was fantastic. Uh, but there is a cost, and this angers the god because Khonshu has already manipulated the sky, and they warned him if he did it again, they were going to imprison him in stone. So they start working on that, which, by the way, as Khonshu pointed out that if he's imprisoned in stone, there goes the healing power and we see that melting away. So if you have an issue with how much Moon Knight you've been getting lately, obviously there won't be a lot of relief coming soon because the source of Moon Knight suits and powers and whatnot uh, has just been imprisoned in stone. I was also a little curious about what the physics were of this, if I may nitpick just a bit, because if it's not, I mean, if it's not real, then it doesn't matter if it's just a projection. And I kind of think that it is, although it's a projection that everybody can see. Also, if it's entirely in someone's head, then it doesn't matter either. But if it is real, like, is it purely a, a visual display that Kanchu has the power to put on? Or is there an actual time space continuum manipulation? Because that's pretty big uh, to be able to do that in the mechanics of the universe and not create other problems. But I don't think that's actually what's happening here. And Really, I think we're not meant to think about the mechanics of the of this scene quite so much and just write it off as a, a visual projection. But I I couldn't help but find myself wondering that because we've had so many time travel, multiversal mm -hmm. mechanics and, and mm -hmm. dynamics or whatever in the MCU. And I, I just can't help my brain. I can't fully prevent my brain from going there from time to time. But I think it is just a visual thing that Kanchi was able to do, even if it is visual for everybody. But this leaves Stephen passed out. Remember, Harrow's men are right there. 
Um, and Layla is there with uh, the body of a passed out Stephen Grant, not dead, but passed out. And then, uh, but they are able to find before Stephen passes out and before Khonshu is imprisoned in stone, uh, they are able to find the location of Amit's tomb, which sets them, uh, them up for next week, presumably. But I, I still like the scene for not just the, the transition from Stephen to Mark Spector. Visually, I thought it was fantastic, as I said, mm-hmm. but I, I liked Khonshu warming up to Stephen and working with him. But then also Khonshu's sacrifice here, that this isn't even uh, the sacrifice that Khonshu is making, even though Khonshu is saying, like, tell Mark to come get me. But um, it's still a huge risk for Khonshu. So while this isn't necessarily a god we, we fully trust or even like all the time with everything that he says and does, at least this is a time where because it was vital to the mission to even to even have a step forward in the mission, Khonshu willing to put himself at, at great risk here. Yeah, I thought I thought it it definitely accomplished multiple things uh, pretty quickly in you know ways that were surprising for all the reasons that you listed. Uh, you know, I talked earlier about Kanchu and how rageful he is, and uh, you know how petulant and like toddler like he can be, and how really abusive he is toward Mark. And you know, it, it is nice to see him fleshed out as well, while not absolving him of his of his crimes. Um, you know, there there is. <laughs> I like sad Kanchu sitting over on a hill, mm-hmm. remembers every night. Um, it uh, yeah, I thought that I thought that was really concise and uh, touching in a way. And I think um, the visual of the stars is really cool. I too was wondering if it was a projection. I really do feel that you know, for me, when they started showing like the wide shots and the reactions of the people. They, you know, that's them telling us like, oh, no, like everybody can see this, whatever yeah. the implications of it is, still did not feel like it had the weight of, uh, you know, a franchise turning point that right. I think these kind of things could. Um, however, like, I, I don't know, he, he could have really moved all the stars and their their planets all over the place. Um, you know, I'm presuming he's just going to switch them right back once he's released. But um, yeah. I mean- I would presume that they already are back. I mean, I, I feel okay. like it's a pardon the pun because it's not intended. It's just kind of unavoidable because I'm not smart enough to think of anything else. I do think it has a snapback effect, like as soon as mm-hmm. they got what they needed to to get, because it cert- they certainly played into an urgency of a- of Layla being able to use, you know, the iPad or whatever she had to triangulate the position based on the star map that she was able to get it right before it all went away. So mm-hmm. it, it seemed like whatever they were doing wasn't was temporary and it, it wouldn't remain. So um, it doesn't seem like it was something that was meant to have any lasting effect. Although I would just think that if you are physically repositioning stars throughout the uh, <laughs> the throughout the entire galaxy or universe, uh, if you're repositioning that to what it was 2000 years ago, even if you're only doing it for a few seconds, uh, that would cause problems or also just generating your own eclipse, uh, as you did earlier in the episode. But Maybe these things are um, are, are so temporary and in whatever godly way Kanchu is doing it that they don't cause uh, any real physical problems. Yeah, he uses his magic to just do away with the other side effects like yeah. tidal waves and just shakes it all away like an etch a sketch. Yeah, exactly. And then goes and then goes into his statue that's made out of uh, you know god rock. Yeah, that, uh, it's it's a it's a real thing that you can hold and touch, but there's a there's an ethereal thing inside of it. Yeah, it, it must be. But I, I think the the delivery, though, and I, I like that you pointed out there was some real there was some sincerity in Kanchu when he said and mm-hmm. almost a longing when he says, I remember that night. I remember every night. So there is a part of this guy that cares. And 
And I, I think that's it's important for that because I think maybe we've been a little judgmental towards Kanchu, not entirely unfair mm-hmm. because of the way that Kanchu has behaved. But at the same time, you know, Mark Spector is certainly a, a very flawed protagonist at, at the very least. And maybe that's Kanchu as well, that Kanchu maybe wasn't always this way and became disillusioned because felt the gods had, as he accuses them earlier, of abandoning humanity and, you know, that maybe Kanchu always cared and he felt like his counterparts did not necessarily care on the same level that he did and weren't willing to go to the lengths that he did, that he was willing to go to in order to protect humanity or whatever the case may be. Uh, there was some very genuine care on the part of Kanchu in that moment and, and not the dismissive attitude that we saw earlier when a kid dies and, and all he can say to is, I thought he would talk. So, um, yeah, that's. Points, some positive points for Kanchu uh, in uh, in that moment. No, totally. I, I think if we're um, you know if we're building out a fully realized character, you know, you could definitely see a pattern of uh, those feelings of of betrayal and not being heard and failure that is driving somebody like Kanchu toward uh, you know toward anger and mistreatment. Um, and you know, hopefully, this uh, this side of him that is willing to utilize the best of his powers and utilize the best of the moon knight powers mm-hmm. and like you said with mr knight it was great to see a moon knight uh you know moon knight suit used for something other than brutality and violence um and i think if we can we're going to continue having moon knight stories so you know as we're as we're going to see Kanchu is a vital part of that and so if we're gonna try to build out everybody's lives and sides and arguments we are going to see that yeah there is a part of mark that will need conchu so hopefully if conchu is going to be by his side uh, he can be rehabilitated in a way and you know let go of some of the the pain of his past yeah mark specter stephen grant conchu they can all save each other is where maybe this will be headed wouldn't that be great so I lied earlier when I said that this was the the last scene because there is a another scene that's kind of the, the bookend piece of this is the aftermath mm-hmm. of Kanchu being imprisoned. We see Harrow is back in uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza. So is the avatar of Osiris, a character named Selim, played by uh, Khalid Abdallah. And uh, there's not really collusion there. It's It's not, we don't get the sense that the avatar of Osiris that he kind of sabotaged the trial earlier and, and was already in, in Harrow's pocket. It doesn't really play like that. It's just really more of Osiris believing Harrow as he believed Harrow earlier that, uh, you know, that Harrow is doing just fine and it's Kanchu who is up to no good. And Kanchu has, whether he meant to or not, essentially confirmed that by manipulating the sky again so soon after he just did it the last time. And we learn that Kanchu is now tethered to the Great Pyramid of Giza while he is imprisoned in stone, but he can still hear, and Harrow takes advantage of that, revealing a truth about himself. I enjoy dealing out pain on your behalf, and Harrow says that this is the greatest sin that he carries. And Paul and I, going back to episode one, talking about the idea of penance and the glass in his shoes, and I I talked about how in episode one it felt like maybe this is the penance Harrow pays for the people he has to kill in service of Amit, and maybe it's that, but it's definitely, since he identifies this as his greatest sin, this is also part of the penance that he's paying for all of the pain that he dealt that he dealt out on behalf of Khonshu, and not just the fact that he dealt out the pain, but because he enjoyed it. So 
This is Harrow being a, a really compelling antagonist, at least in terms of having the conviction to actively punish himself for what he sees as his sins uh, by walking on glass, by keeping himself in pain all the time because he's never going to be able to make up for I don't think those scales will ever be fully balanced as far as him being able, although they must be because he's allowed to live, uh, according to Amit. But um, that this is how he this is how he compensates for it. He dealt out a lot of pain, so he deals himself pain with every single step he takes. Literally, um, I, I think is a very very interesting perspective for a, an antagonist to carry. But I I totally loved it, and then. Uh, two of my favorite lines um, in this episode or any episode so far, when he says, you know, your torment forged me, but then also says as our closing line of the episode, I owe my victory to you. Uh, I owe my victory mm -hmm. to you, uh, Kanchu. This is really great writing here. I, I love this dialogue and Ethan Hawke delivers it perfectly and uh, just has just the the perfect amount of punch that goes into all of these lines that do a great job of informing his character and, and really making this a fully realized character as opposed to just the mustache twirling antagonist who's in the way of our heroes. Totally. I think this episode really, in the last, the last one too, but I mean, especially uh, his stuff with that last scene uh, shows why Hawk was really attracted to the role. Um, I'm really glad that he had some involvement in like the look of the character and some of the motivations. And, you know, he's a writer himself. Uh, he's doing an incredible job. He, you know, it, he he physically transformed. I think really interestingly. I also feel like he doesn't play a lot of uh, like like big characters, like with uh, like you know different hairstyle, uh, different kind of energy to it. He, I feel like he plays grounded really well, or at least that's the stuff that I know him most well from. Um, so it, it's exciting to see him stretch in this way in, in a in a project that's so uh, genre based. Um, while being really introspective and smart too so he's doing an incredible job i can't wait to see where his character goes and yeah i thought it was a cool way to end the episode i, I think i was a little surprised that it ended there but maybe i was just lulled in so much by that point that i you know i didn't think it would ever end <laughs> um <laughs> but he uh it, it, i appreciated that for such again really uh an expansive fast-paced aggressive episode i really appreciated that this final moment we just kind of pulled it back in and really just made all that tension really kinetic and closed out on an intimate kind of chilling moment yeah i thought it had i think punch was the word i used to describe it because that's kind of what it felt like and, and that's where i i love that it was the ending of an episode it's not necessarily i i can't say that i felt this was going to be the end of the episode mm -hmm. but when he has that last line of I owe my victory to you and then we, we cut to black and the credits start, I, I felt even though it wasn't necessarily where I saw it ending, I couldn't help but feel like that was totally the right ending for this moment in the series because this is the midpoint, right? And mm -hmm. while you could say that if we're calling this a three-act structure, that episode four would be kind of the the end of act two, this is as bad as it's going to get sort mm -hmm. of moment before the hero makes the comeback over the last few episodes. I think we've already seen that that hasn't necessarily been the case. And, and the act structure hasn't necessarily been exactly what you would think, where we felt like the situation got as bad as it was going to get in episode four. And then we see in episode five or six and oh, the situation is 
so much worse or it's it's an even greater challenge that's placed in front of our hero or heroes and, and so I, I think in this instance the midway point of the series is just as good as any for the villain to or our antagonist to feel like he's got it for our antagonist to feel like he's already won and and also I think it's right for this for Harrow to feel like there's a victory this early relatively speaking in the story because he already feels like he's so far ahead. He, he's so far ahead of Mark Spector and Stephen Grant because he's already been all the places that they've been and so many more. So the only thing he had to worry about really was Khonshu. And now he's taking care of that problem as far as he knows. And so I, I think that is where um, it is just that it, it's a great moment to end this. And then you have to hope that the heroes can make a comeback in subsequent episodes. And that's not my way of saying, by the way, that like this is as bad as it's going to get for Mark Spector, Stephen Grant, Conchu. It could, there are ways for it to get even worse. And as we see, like their Harrow's men are already there. And you have Layla and Stephen there. Stephen is passed out and he's not going to be able to tap into any Moon Knight powers immediately because Conchu is imprisoned in stone. So you can already see how the, the situation will just get more and more challenging. But yeah, it, it, I didn't, as it happened, I didn't feel like that was the last moment of the episode, but when I realized it was, then I felt like it was the perfect way to close out this episode and just leave me desperate to see what would happen in the next one, which I had the advantage at the time with the screeners of being able to immediately watch the next one. Uh, but now as, as we record this, it's really not that far off before everybody can watch this episode. And I really can't wait for everybody, including you, Tom, to see episode four and for us to be able to talk about it and then we'll all be in the same place watching Moon Knight. And then as we uh, yeah. gear toward the last two, we might not get the caviar that you had or whatever they sent yes. uh, for your little exclusive screening. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> caviar is uh, delivered via Postmates or whatever uh, <laughs> to your door. They, they time They know exactly when you're going to start screening the episode, which, you know, <laughs> on average is probably like five minutes after they send you the link, but uh, or less. But well, it takes that long to log in. But anyway, uh, yeah, I'm I'm very excited to watch episode four again. It's been a while since I've seen it, um, but I'm even more excited to just be able to to talk about it and be in that place uh, with everybody else of not knowing what's about to happen next and, um, you know, in, in the mystery of it all. Um, but also, I really liked episode four, and I think a lot of you are, are going to enjoy it as well. Um, and, and certainly we will have plenty to discuss once you all once you all see it, because we always have plenty to discuss when we have a new episode of a Marvel Studios series on uh, on Disney Plus. But that is where we will wrap up this episode. Just a reminder on Fan Show Plus, you'll be able to find our trailer or rather, excuse me, not a trailer, a teaser breakdown for Thor Love and Thunder. You can find that at Patreon.com slash Sean Gerber. Or if you search for Fan Show Plus or the MCU Fan Show channel on Apple Podcasts, you can subscribe there so you can get episodes of Fan Show Plus, including that breakdown episode of the Thor Love and Thunder teaser. And then make sure you follow us at MCU Fan Show on Twitter and Instagram and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already. If you have, thank you so much for doing that. Tom, where can everybody keep up with you? Uh, you can find me at Tom DeMichael across all social media channels where you can see me licking knives and getting punched in the face. <laughs> nice. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, not getting, not licking knives, maybe getting punched in the face at Mr. Sean Gerber. So for Tom, I'm Sean. Thanks for listening to MCU Fan Show. We'll see you next time. 
And because I forgot to say it before I hit the music, laters, Gators. <laughs>